Well, hey, friends. Welcome. Come back in. Find your seat. We're going to continue this morning. Happy uh, Super Bowl Sunday. I hope your team wins today. Even though that's probably impossible, unless we're all cheering for the same team. It's not going to be true for everybody. But the... uh, I hope some of our teams wins today. Anyways, uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name's Jake. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm uh, really glad to be with you this morning as we continue a series that we started four weeks ago called Christian. And so if this is your first time here, then you kind of come into the middle of a, of a conversation that we've been having. And so let me try to catch you up real quick, and this can kind of serve as a, a kind of a quick review for the rest of us. But what we've been talking about is this word, uh, Christian, and how... Um, it's actually only used three times in the entire Bible. Isn't that interesting? And that, in fact, Jesus never uses this word. He never uses this word to describe his followers. And uh, as a result of you know, Jesus not using the Bible, only using it three times, it's, it's never undefined because it's always used by an outside group to describe these people, these Jesus followers. And the, therefore, it's, it's never defined. And what happens and what has happened with that is that throughout history, this, this term became like the brand for this group of people. And yet, because it's an undefined term, it's really allowed for it to mean whatever we want it to mean. And so you've got Christians on every side of every issue and every side of, of almost every war, like fighting against each other. And it's like, hey, aren't, shouldn't y'all get along like you're Christians? But Christian, an undefined concept, is, it, it uh, has led to, it's one of the results, not the only result, but one of the things that has led to a lot of lack of unity and all that stuff. Jesus never uses that word. In fact, he uses a different word. We've been talking about that word a lot. And so that word's up here. It's the word uh, disciple. And that's what he called his followers, disciples. And disciple is a challenging term. That's what we've been saying throughout this series because the term disciple is clearly defined in Scripture. Like, it's really clear. Like, this is what a disciple does. and It's how a disciple acts. And this is because what a disciple is, literally, is it's a follower. It's a, it's a student. It's a pupil. And specifically for us, we're followers, we're students, we're pupils of, of Jesus. And so how Jesus would live is how we are to live. How Jesus loves is how we're to love. And so it's really clearly defined. But that means it's extremely challenging. And last week, we just quickly uh, talked about, or one of the things that I quickly mentioned, was that how the, how the first century and really second and third century followers of Jesus really did something amazing. They actually followed Jesus. <laughs> and what happened was uh, they saw themselves as disciples and they uh, lived like it. And they took Jesus' teachings really uh, like, like personal and, and they followed his instructions. And the result was it was that uh, in the Roman Empire, Christianity just spread like wildfire. And all of a sudden, like within the first, uh, within 300 years of the birth of this religion, birth of Christianity, the message of Christianity had spread so rapidly that the empire of Rome actually adopts Christianity as its official religion, which is kind of a, a wild, wild deal. Now, last week we talked about how that was not a good thing because we ended up leveraging control and power to try to influence people instead of love, like the first century, second century uh, Jesus followers did. But as a result of them loving like Jesus loved, like the, the gospel spread like crazy. Rome adopts 
uh, Christianity is their official religion. In fact, today, if you go to Rome, modern-day Rome, you'll see crosses everywhere, right? I know some of y'all have been there. Almost everywhere you look, you can at least see a cross somewhere on tops of buildings, on buildings, even highway signs, like all over the place. I've got some pictures of of Rome, and y'all can see some of these, but I I don't know. So you got, I mean, you got crosses everywhere. I don't know if you can actually see the crosses on the top of these buildings there, but they're there, believe me. (laughs) I looked for these pictures, and I found them, and they're there. But, um... Anyways, like even in the emperor's gate and the slave gate of the Roman Colosseum, there's crosses now. Now, look, like if you're not, you know, if you don't rush forward in history, because uh, yeah, this can be easily explained, right? It's like you say, well, I think they have to do that, right? Like that's where the Pope lives, right? Like, of course, there are crosses everywhere. But if you don't rush forward in history and you actually think about this, because, oh, this is, and if you're not a Jesus follower, like this is just something I'd, I'd encourage you to give some thought to because this is a little bit of like the, uh, you know, I've heard it said, like a mystery of history. Like how in the world did this happen? Because if we were to go back in time to 65, like 66 AD, you know, right after the emperor Nero had burned Rome and then he had blamed it on Christians. Like back, if we were to go back to that time, 65 AD, what Nero had done, he, he had issued a decree that the Christians had actually been the ones that had set Rome on fire. And he had issued an, an edict saying, like, all Christians should be killed, burned, fed to lions, crucified. And so uh, that began to happen. There was this thing, sorry, this thing that some of you all know about uh, called Nero's Circus that uh, wasn't actually a circus at all, but it was uh, like a big arena where they had just kind of mass killings of Christians taking place there. And if you can just go with like, like think about this for a second, put yourself back in 65 AD. Like if we were able to go back in time and we were to talk to a Christian family at that time, what we'd, probably, we'd probably find them hiding somewhere in the uh, outskirts of Rome. And they'd probably be huddled together with one or two other Christian families. And they'd be terrified. And they would have had to leave everything that was there. They would have, to, have had to uh, leave their homes. And they had to flee, you know, flee because of this persecution. And, and, the, and the kids were going to be scared to death. The, the, the husbands, the men are going to be terrified. They know that if they're found out that they're Christians, that they'll be handed over to the authorities to be persecuted and, and probably killed. They probably know lots of friends who have already died. And like, they're terrified. And if we were to go back to them and talk to them, and we were to show them some of these pictures on our iPhones, and they'd be like, what in the world? But now if we were to go back to them and, <laughs> and say, like, do you know that one day the city that you fled, the city right now where they're killing Christians, will one day have crosses all over the place in it. And those crosses, they're not, they're not going to be like a sign of Rome. And they're not, they're not going to be, uh, they're not going to stand for crucifixion in general. But this cross is going to stand for one single crucifixion of one Jewish carpenter whom you worship. Jesus, your Savior. This, the, that city is going to be covered with crosses representing Jesus. Like they would just, they just wouldn't be able to comprehend that. And if we were to tell them, hey, this, this thing, Christianity, this movement that you're a part of, it's going to become worldwide. It's going to be internationally known. There are going to be places in the world that haven't even been discovered yet where churches will be worshiping Jesus. And, and in your city, in Rome, 
no one's going to be worshiping at the temples there. They're not, no one's worshiping Jupiter anymore. Like those temples now, they're just tourist attractions. And, and, and you know what? There are going to be Christians who take pilgrimages to Rome now. Not to go see Nero's circus because it's not there anymore. What they're going to go is to the spot of Nero's circus where there's this cathedral for the Apostle Peter because the Apostle Peter is believed to have been killed in Nero's circus. And they're going to come there and they're going to uh, uh, visit that because Rome is going to be known for accepting the religion that is persecuting you for right now. And they just, like, they wouldn't, like, what would they do with that news? I mean, they would be dumbfounded, right? I mean, they would think we're crazy. They would say, there's no way. Like, hey, there's just, there's no way that they can, ha-. they hate us. They're trying to wipe us out. They're, they are killing, all, like, they've killed my friends. They've killed my family. Like, they're killing everybody. They, there's no way that they ever would worship Jesus as Savior. And yet, within 300 years, which is not a long time, historically speaking, within 300 years, the empire of Rome has adopted Christianity as its official religion. How? How did that happen, guys? How did that happen? I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing I know. I know that it didn't happen as a result of Christians, people deciding that they just wanted to be Christians. <laughs> just people who want to be known for what they believe, but can behave any way they want to behave. That kind of world-changing transformation did not take place just by simple people saying, okay, I'm going to believe, what I, I'm going to believe this, but it's not going to let it impact my life. No, the, the way that that happened was that people believed the gospel message and it radically changed them. And they saw themselves as disciples of Jesus' teaching. They decided to love like Jesus loved and to live like Jesus lived. And as a result, God used them to change the world. Literally, to change the world. And so today, what we're going to talk about and kind of part two of what I talked about last week is how are we as Jesus followers, as, as disciples, how are we uh, supposed to live and interact with those who don't believe what we believe? And last week, if you remember, we talked about what we're not supposed to do. And that was that we were not supposed to judge those that don't believe what we believe. We're not to like, force our morality on them. That's what we're not to do. But today we're going to talk about what we are to do. And uh, to do that, we're going to uh, spend some time in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew 5. Or if, uh, you know, if you've got your phone, pull it up on, to Matthew 5. And we're going to look at uh, this speech that Jesus gives in this passage. And this speech, this is like the, um, I don't know how to maybe put it. Basically, it's like the speech that kind of set the direction for the entire Jesus movement, if you will. Like this was a speech that everybody rallied around. You could say it was kind of the beginning of, you know, of Jesus' ministry and it's kind of where he launched out like, these are like the kingdom values. This is what it's going to look like to be followers of me. This is, the, this is like the rallying, like this is the speech that if you live this out, the world's going to change kind of speech. The empire of Rome is going to be turned upside down. It's this kind of speech. And so he's got about, uh, uh, you know, probably a, a lot of, like at least 
least a couple hundred, if not a couple thousand people around him at this point in time. And he gets ready to, to launch into this like revolutionary, uh, world-changing, beginning of the movement kind of speech. And this is what he says in verse, five, uh, uh, verse, verse 1 of Matthew 5. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And are you ready? Okay. Like, this is the speech. Like, I was, y'all have heard this before, right? You've heard this, many of y'all have heard this before, but I want you to, like, I want to put this in a context where you're, like, are hearing this, thinking about how the original audience would have heard this. Like, Jesus is launching his ministry. He's, he's saying, all right, here it is. This is the speech. This is rallying around. Like, how are they hearing this? This is what he says, verse 2. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Okay, let me pause right there and think. Like, can you imagine this crowd? Like, here is Jesus, starts, starts speaking. And then they say, okay, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? What's this going to be? It's going to be good. Okay, this is his intro. Blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the blessed are the poor. Like that's what you're going to open up with, Jesus. Like okay, like well, all right. Let's. You got anything more? And she says, Yeah, I've got more. Here we go. Verse uh, verse five. Blessed are the meek, or the humble, or the the gentle. Blessed blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And again, I'm think that they're thinking. Like these are Israelites, they are, uh, you know, been taken over by Rome. And they're thinking, what? The meek will in- inherit the earth? Like, Jesus, are you, are you from around here? Because like, do you know anything about Rome? Like the, the meek, the meek will inherit the earth. Like we, we haven't even controlled our own city, our own nation. We haven't even controlled that in dozens and dozens and dozens of years. Like the meek, you know what happens to the meek? In Rome, they get swallowed up. They, they get dominated. Like, what are you talking about? We're going to inherit the earth. We can't even take care of our own land. But Jesus continues. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Okay. You think, all right. They're, they want to like raise their hand, interrupt him. Like, okay, Jesus, let me just ask you another question. Was, like, really? The, the merciful? Uh, the, the peacemakers? Really? Are you from around here? Like, I know I already asked you that, but like, this is not making any sense because like, this is Rome. And like, this, making peace, this doesn't get us anywhere. Showing mercy now just gets you taken advantage of. Like, what are, like, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm, I'm so confused. Like, where is this going? Jesus continues. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And yeah, like, I think, I think that crowd was probably like this. Like, just kind of quiet. And like someone saying, hey, 
Maybe he'll do, maybe he'll do a miracle. Maybe he's going to do a miracle. This speech is going nowhere. Like, I mean, just to recap, this is what Jesus is, they're thinking. Okay, so this is what you're telling us that we need to be. We're to be poor, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, insulted people waiting for a reward in heaven. That, that's who we're to be, Jesus. This, this is the game-changing speech. This is like the, the launching of the movement. Like this is, so we're, we're, again, we're to be poor, sad, meek, righteous, merciful, pure, peaceful, persecuted, insulted people waiting for a reward in heaven. People are like, seriously? This is? And yet, you know, it's, what's really wild is that they're thinking, this, is, this can't be going anywhere. Like, how is this a, a game-changing message? And yet the message of Jesus in 300 years is going to completely, radically change the entire world. But Jesus is like, okay, well, here, let me, let me give you a couple of word pictures. Because this is, this is kind of the character of, of the kingdom. These are kingdom values, but you don't really f- fully get this. So let me give you a couple of word pictures that will help you understand what I'm talking about, who you are and what kind of effect, impact you're to, you're to have. And so he continues and he goes into verse 13 and he says, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. That's who you are. Now, everybody in Jesus' audience knew what salt was. Salt, primarily for them in that day, was a preservative, right? And y'all guys, you know, you know what a preservative is. They, they didn't have refrigeration, so that's the kind of way they kept the, the, the meat fresh. A preservative is this. It simply puts a substance like salt added to food to prevent decomposition because, you know, without a preservative, Things decompose, they rot, they begin to stink. And so it's, you know, this is what salt does. And uh, it's that substance added to food to prevent decomposition due to chemical change or bacterial action. All right, learn something in church today. There you go. The, um, you're like, I knew that already. But um, this is a wild statement, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying, you are the salt of the earth. And in saying this, he's saying, you, that audience, and to us today, you are the preservative of the earth. You're the thing, you're the way, you're the ones that are to keep the earth from rotting. To keep the culture of the earth from stinking, from decaying. Like, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, especially if I was not a Jesus follower and I heard that, like, that would just really rub me wrong. That statement would run me wrong for two reasons. And, and like I've had to wrestle with some of this this week. But like at first, I, I hate how pessimistic this statement seems to be. And it really comes across as arrogant. I mean, if you're, if you're just honest about it, right? Like it's pessimistic because Jesus is saying, hey, the world is decaying. The culture of the world is rotting. It needs a preservative. And that sounds incredibly pessimistic, doesn't it? Like the word, earth is not getting better. The world, the culture, humanity not getting better. It's just getting worse off. Now, what's interesting is that that message was incredibly countercultural in the early 1900s. Nowadays, most of us hear that, and in our cultural mindset, many of us think, okay, yeah, like I hate acknowledging that, but I can see how that can be true. But in the early 1900s, that was a completely different train of thought. People thought the world was just steadily progressing to this ideal kind of humanity. And then the world wars hit, and like it just changed everybody's viewpoints. And since then, we've had many other things like that. It causes people to have a real critical view 
on the world. I mean, we don't trust anybody anymore, right? We don't trust politics. We don't trust politicians. We don't trust business people. We don't, tr- we don't even trust pastors or priests. Like in our culture today, we don't trust anybody. We, we can see, okay, yeah, I can see that things aren't always just getting better. Jesus is affirming that. He's saying things are, can, in our culture, in the world today, things are headed downhill. But what he says is the solution doesn't, it, it sounds arrogant, doesn't it? Because he's saying Christians, like you guys, my followers, y'all are to be the salt of the earth. You're the preservatives. You're the thing that's going to keep it from decaying or slow down the rotting, if you will. And like, in our, in our culture, that just rings false. I mean, there's book after book after book right now that's being released uh, from people that are saying that really the major problem in the world today is religion. That religion is the issue. The main, main problem, main conflict in the world today comes down to religion. And Christianity is thought of to be one of the main offenders in that. And like their point that they make there, there's a lot of truth to it. There's a lot that you can see what they're describing is true. What's rough, and what we're trying to do in this series, guys, is we're, we're trying to point out that with Christianity, it's been, just, it's been defined and it's been made to be whatever people want it to be. And you can have, like I said, Christians on every side of every issue and every side of every war. And if all it is to follow Jesus is simply to believe something and then live however way you want, then it makes sense that like, Christianity has messed things up in a lot of ways. But Jesus is saying something radically different here. He's saying, my followers, my disciples, the ones that live like I live, they are to, they are to be citizens of a different kingdom, my kingdom. And they're to, they're to encompass these kingdom values, these beatitudes, these things that I just read at the beginning. They're to be like this. And in doing this, they're to give the onlooking world a picture of the way the world is supposed to be, the way that it will one day be in the kingdom. When, when Christ returns again and sets up kingdom, like everything is made right, we're to be citizens of that kingdom now and give people a picture of what that will one day be like. And if you do that, then you're being salt. You're being a preservative. And just think for a second, like just think about the original audience that he's saying this to. Like, he's speaking into a world where might made right. Like, that was, that was the Roman Empire, right? If you wanted to know what the right thing, to do, right thing to do was, you looked for the people with the biggest army, right? Like, that's how it was determined. The morality was not determined. Like, moral issues were not moral issues. Ethical issues were not really ethical issues. It was all came down to who had the longest sword, who had all of the power. That's why women hardly had any rights and children had even fewer rights. Mercy and compassion and generosity were not virtues. And those were things for the weak. It was a world hard for us to imagine. It's a world that you maybe only can see if you go to a couple other places in the world today where it still is ruled that way. That worldview still is the dominant worldview. And it's to that group living at that time that Jesus says this. And we can't fully appreciate this, but as a result of them living this out, our world has been radically impacted. By a result of them being salt in that kind of culture and living as agents of the kingdom and living according to a different worldview, our world today has been shaped by that. 
Like we benefit every single day from a Judeo-Christian worldview that says men and women and children have value. That men, women, and children are made in the image of God. And when we hear about things like human trafficking and slavery and you know, children being trafficked, and we think, like, who does that? Like, how can someone do that? And it, one of the things that results, one of the reasons that happens is because the people who are doing that do not see the world the way that you see the world. And the way we see the world is not just common. It's not everyone sees the world the same way. We've been taught to see the world the way that we see the world. And a part of the way that we've been taught is because this kind of values, this worldview has been passed down to us, and a lot of it finds its root in this couple centuries of Christians following Jesus. You can root it all the way back to, you know, to, to Judaism, but then that the teaching Judaism uh, really uh, explained by Jesus, expounded upon by Jesus, and then exploded into culture through the Christians in the first and second, third centuries, and we have been impacted by that. And as a result, that's why, like in our culture, why do we applaud mercy? Why do we look at compassion? Why do we look at self-sacrifice on the behalf of someone else, even risking your life for someone else or risking income for someone else? Why would we look at that and say, that's a good thing? That's to be, it's because of this. People living as salt in our world. And man, that's how it's supposed to be. Now, we've got it wrong. Christians have messed this up, and we have not lived that, that way for, on a, like, across a wide spectrum for a very, very long time. And so that's why it comes hard to believe. But man, if you did, if you do it, then just this couple centuries of Christians doing it has had a profound impact. They've actually changed the world. What, what would happen if we did this? What if we lived like salt? What if we really believe we were the salt of the earth and live like it? Jesus goes on. He says this. He says, not only are you salt of the earth, but in verse 14, you are the light of the world. To which we say, I don't want to be the light of the world, right? Like, hey, I just, Jesus, come on. Like, I just... I just want to pray that prayer, and I want to go to heaven when I die, and I want, I want to like take care of my family and make some money. Like, leave me alone. I don't want to be the salt of the earth. I don't want to be the light of the world. Like, come on, are you kidding? Are you kidding me? But you know, Jesus would say to that, he'd say, like, I don't know who taught you that. I don't, I don't know who taught you that. That's what it is to be a follower of me. Like, this is me. And Jesus saying, I'm teaching you right now. This is who you are. This is what it means to follow me. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That's what it means. That's how you're to to live. He continues and he says, you're the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And in the Greek, the word that uh, we translate into uh, set on carries the meaning of being placed on with intention. All right. So you're you're a city set on or placed on purpose is the idea. Set on a hill on purpose and with intention. And now, this is, this is really interesting to think about. Like, we don't think this way, do we? Like, we don't see ourselves as being placed in, at a specific place on purpose. But Jesus is saying, you're the light to your neighborhood. You're a light to where you are on purpose. And we think, no, 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 that's, that's, like, I just moved into town, and I couldn't find a, you know, I was just looking for a place. I knew I wanted to live by close to the city. I found an apartment. I found a house that I liked, and that's why I live there. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you live there because you were set there on purpose. 
See, you're, you're the light of the world. You're, you're a city set on a hill with intentionality. And you say, no, 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 no. I'm, you know, look, look, I'm, I'm, I'm just, a, I wanted to go to UT. And instead I'm going to, I'm driving my way to Texas State or I'm at AC&C, uh, ACC. I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a light on a hill set there on purpose. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a stuck student in a school I didn't want to be at. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're, you're there on purpose. You're set there on purpose. Now, this is hard for us to like wrap our minds around unless you think about it from another angle. And so let me do this real quick. Like all of you guys, I would say at least the vast majority of you, if you are a Jesus follower, could point to somebody in your life who was salt and light to you. Somebody that, that came into your life and had a profound impact on you. And from that vantage point, you would say that person, it felt like they were providentially put in my life. But from their vantage point, they probably didn't see that way. They probably just bought the house on your street. And they bought that house because they liked that house. But when they moved into your street and you got to know them, and then they had a profound impact on your life, and now you know Jesus, now you, now you know that your eternity is secure, you would say, that, that, person, that person was providentially put there. Like for me personally, when I was in middle school, I, was, I had a big struggle whether I was actually going to follow Jesus. And I went back and forth whether I ever wanted to follow Jesus. And then one day, in the summer between 8th grade and ninth grade, uh, this family moved into my neighborhood. And they had a son that was a year older than me named Ryan. And we began to hang out. And we began to hang out a whole lot. And Ryan loved God a lot more than I loved God. And Ryan was salt and light to me. And through Ryan, God got a hold of my heart. And my life literally was changed direction of my life literally changed. And you ask me, I'd say, Ryan was a godsend. He was providentially placed in my neighborhood that I could know him and then God could use him to reach me. But if you ask Ryan, he would say, no, my dad, we moved from Dallas because my dad just got a job and we just landed in this place because we liked this house. See, guys, it's a lot easier to see as receivers that people are providentially placed in, in, in people's lives. Jesus is saying, hey, that's the reason it feels that way is because it is that way. We are all strategically placed where we are to be a light, to be the light of the world. He goes on, he says this. Verse 14 and through 16 he says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all, uh, to all, to all in the house. In the same way, so in the same way as a city on a hill, the same way as a, as a, a, a lamp, uh, let your light shine before others so that, and then we in our culture like to fill this blank in, so that... Uh, People will see your church attendance and say, dang, that guy's a good Christian, right? I mean, that's like that. Woo, he goes to church a lot. He's a good Christian. That's what we like to fill it in. But that, again, that's not what Jesus says here. That's not, I don't, like, I don't know where we get that from. Jesus says this. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And he has, this is powerful. He's saying, I want you to live your life in such a way. I want your light to shine in such a way that when people see your good deeds, they don't go, oh, he's such a nice guy. Or she's such a nice girl. 
they say, who does that? Wait a second, like, who's that nice? Who, who's that thoughtful? Who's, who's that generous? Like, seriously, like, who does that? Who's, who's that considerate? Like they, like, they just met me, and they knew I was sick, and they just keep bringing me meals. And I'm like, man, the food is really good, but, like, who does this? Who takes care of people like this that they just met? Look, that, I know they've got kids already, and they're busy people, but they're, but they're taking in more kids into their family. Like, who does that? Like, who does that kind of stuff, that kind of good deeds? Jesus is actually saying, I want your good deeds to be extraordinary. Can the Greek... The word that's used here for good isn't the word describing quality, but it's the word describing beauty. He's saying, let your beautiful deeds, your amazing deeds, your Jesus-revealing deeds be so extraordinary that people begin to connect the dots between your lifestyle and your Father in heaven. Jesus is saying, I want you to be a dot connector. I want people to see your life, the way that you live, and it caused them to be like, okay, that no one does that. What's going on? What's, what's and you're able to connect the dots between the way you're living and why you're living that way, which comes down to who your father is and what your Savior has done for you. And so that when they see your good deeds, they don't just give you praise, but they end up praising your Father in heaven. Let your light shine, Jesus is saying, in that way. In that way. The, uh, what's wild is that uh, in the first and second, third century of Christianity, they did that. And it literally changed the world. Like, I mean, you, you've probably read some Christian history, or you've heard this before, but like, it, it, you know, it's well verified outside external sources of the Bible. It's like none of this is found in the Bible. This is all after the Bible wrote, was written. But like the Christians were known for going down to the riverbeds where, where, where babies were abandoned and going and taking those babies and bringing them into their home, even though they already had plenty of kids on the, of their own. The Christians were known for being the, the people that when a plague hit a town or a village, everyone fled except the Christians. The Christians stayed back. And they nursed people to health, and many of them died as a result. That during this mass, mass martyrdom of Christianity, Christians were known for dying well. And people in the Greek and the, the Roman society, they're looking at Christians and they're thinking, like, how, like they are just dying by the Joseph, but you know, they're not recanting their faith and they have this strong faith. What, what is going on? They must know something about what's on the other side than what I know. And through that, the world was changed. Through these extor- extraordinary good deeds, people started having their, the dots connected between these good people and this great God. And they start saying, like, what's going on? And, like, the Roman Empire was evangelized. Some of us are good at this. And some of us want to settle for just being a Christian. Some of us want to just say, I just want to go to heaven when I die. Leave me alone. Because this is who Jesus said we are. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. And when we live that way, it has a profound impact. I, uh, when we, I, I just wrote this. I said, okay, if we're to be salt, that means to be countercultural enough, like we, weird enough, where people pay attention because you live a different kind of life. 
See, and you're not judging people for the way that they're living, but you're also not living the way that they're living. And you're doing it around them. And they might feel irritated by that, but salt is an irritant. And they might feel convicted by that, and they might feel challenged by that. But when you talk to them, and when they talk to you, they don't feel condemned by you. You're not looking down at your nose at them. You're just not living the same way as them. And when that happens, it has this like tension effect on them. And they're, they're, they come in contact with the kingdom, with kingdom values. And God uses that. It's powerful. I mean, not to, like I, I hate telling illustrations of myself but the, I, that make me sound like a good person. But uh, I'm going to do that anyways. The, uh, the other day I was having, I was, you know, a couple months ago I was watching a game with uh, one of my neighbors watch a football game. It was him and a couple of his friends. And, and they're, you know, we're having a good time. But then they begin talking near the end of the game, what they're going to do after the game. And they decide they're going to go to a strip club. And my, my neighbor kindly invites me to come along with him. And so I go and it's like, I shouldn't be here. No, just kidding. <laughs> Some of y'all's faces like that quick. We're like, oh my goodness. Things just got weird. The, uh, no, it's like, now, I, so I kindly, like I tried to kindly, de, you know, decline the invitation as, as kind and as non-condemning as I, as I knew how. But I just told him, I, I said, yeah, I really appreciate the invite. I, I promised Krista that I won't go to places like that for the sake of her marriage. And I just kind of left it at that. But I didn't want to just say no. I wanted to give him reason for why. And I didn't want to just give him any reason why. I wanted to give him the real reason why. And so I said it. And I could tell a couple of those other guys were married, and I could tell it just kind of sat a little bit weird in that conversation. And I just had to trust God with that. Because salt, salt is, it preserves. And there's something about that that's, that God can use to be powerful. And guys, here's the thing. We don't know when that's working. But here's what we do know. Salt always preserves. It always does. Salt always preserves. Even when you can't see it preserving, it's preserving. And light always shows the way. Even when we don't feel like it's doing it, if we're living as a light, then it's showing the way. And we might not ever see the result of it. But it's at work because Jesus said that that's who we are and it's going to do its work. One of the best opportunities I've ever had to share the gospel with someone is because of an extraordinary act of love done for me and Krista. And uh, my neighbor... Uh, in Pflugerville. His name was Eric. He's my next door neighbor. He's a fun guy. I, I liked hanging out with him. We hung out a lot. And he was, um, uh, you know, I got to share the gospel with him a whole lot and he just hadn't had a lot of fruit from it. But one day, as a result of Jason and Beth, and I didn't tell him I was going to talk about this because they probably would have told me not to. But um, as a result of Jason and Beth, like l- being a light and, and, and loving people in an extraordinary way, yeah, some of y'all know this. They bought us a car. Like the Prius that Krista drives, Jason and Beth bought us that car. Like straight up. They even bought car seats to fit three car seats in the car because Krista's about to have Della. And so like they bought the whole thing for us. And so my neighbor comes out of his, of his house, his garage. He always hung out in the garage. He comes out and he's, he's looking at this new car. And he's like, man, so you got a new car? And I was like, dude, I got to tell you something. And I just told him the story. Jason and Beth bought us this car, and it blew his mind. Like literally, like I could, like I, like you could just see the wheels churning in his head. Like, 
that doesn't make sense. Like, I don't have a category for that. Who, like, who does that? And Eric had walked with me and Krista through the adoption of Enoch. And, like, we told him, you know, he, he just kind of followed us through all of that. And he says to us that, that day, he just says, you guys are, you guys are weird. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't get it. Who does that kind of stuff? Like, you, you adopt a kid. You've got friends that buy you a car. Like, who does? And I was able to, like, I got to be a dot connector. And I just got to say, look, man, let me tell you why we do that. And I told him about Jesus. And I told him about how awesome our Heavenly Father is. And it was, I, it, I think it was, had a profound impact on him. He didn't put his faith in Christ right then. But I could tell it was sinking in. That's salt always preserves. And light always shows the way. And that's who we are. We're to be salt and we're to be light. Now, the last thing I want to say, and I know I did it again. I went long. But this is our calling. This is who we're to be. We're to be salt and we're to be light. We're to live and like, do these extraordinarily good acts, these extraordinarily good deeds so they see it and they glorify God in heaven. How's that for a calling? Are you feeling like, oh, I got that. Yeah, I just didn't realize that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Okay, I'll go do that now. Like, that's intimidating. That's challenging. Guys, be honest with yourself. How long can you live that way with any kind of sustained uh, capacity? This is an impossible way to live. Except by the power of God himself. And guys... The reason that we can be the light of the world, as Jesus says, is not because we have some kind of incredible light within ourselves, like we're these these really good people. I know personally, for me, that's not true. But Jesus, when he says, you're the light of the world, and he then makes it, like he does this analogy, like a, like a city on the hill, like a lamp. What he is saying is that he, or what he doesn't say is, like a sun, or like the stars, which the sun and the stars, they have a light within themselves. But at the city, especially in that day and age, it really just kind of reflected the sun's light when it's on the hill, or had the lamps on the, at, on the, on the city at nighttime, and then a lamp for sure. They, all they do is contain a light. They are not a light in themselves. They just contain the light. And guys, the only way that we can ever be the light of the world is if we know the true light of the world. In John chapter 8, it says this. I think I've got it up here. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And guys, hear this. We will never be the salt of the earth. We will never be the light of the world if we're not first completely taken by Jesus. If we don't know Jesus, if we don't spend time with Jesus, if we don't embrace Jesus, if we don't allow Jesus to be the love and the light that shines through us, that flows from us. We cannot do this by ourselves, but the amazing thing is because of what Jesus has done for us, that he left heaven and entered our dark and decaying world and laid down his life on our behalf that we could be forgiven and redeemed and adopted and been made new. That we could be found in him. 
then his light can then be found in us. And when we embrace him, that light can shine. And guys, when that does, as it did in the first and second and third century, it can literally change the world. So let's embrace Christ. Guys, spend time in the spend time in the Word. Read your Bible. Spend time with Jesus. Let Him, the true light, be your light. And then show it. Because you're the salt of the earth. And you, as Jesus said, as Jesus said, like this Jesus said this, you are the light of the world. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just ask for your power, your strength to move in our hearts that we would live this way, that this is who you said we were. God, may we, may we be that. But God, we can't do it on our own. And so God, we confess our lack of ability and we announce our dependence on you, Jesus. For you are the true light, the ultimate light. And God, we love you and we love how you have shown the way and provided the way for us to be made right with you, to be your children, and then to be your reflection, that your light would shine through us. God, may you do that, and may our communities, may our families, may Austin, may our nation, God, even the world, be changed as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.